Welcome to the Performance Connection Podcast, the show where we connect you to the highest quality information and leading professionals in the world of human performance. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of the Performance Connection Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Gabrielle Fendero. Gabrielle, how are you? I am great. How are you doing? I'm doing good. I'm doing fantastic. I'm very excited to have you on today. I, just, I feel like we're going to have a, an awesome discussion. But before we dive in, why don't you go ahead and tell the listeners who you are, your background, what you've done educationally, and then also what you've done professionally. For sure. So I am known on uh, Instagram as Vitamin PhD. I have my bachelor's in exercise science from Radford University, which is a really tiny liberal arts school. Maybe not so tiny now. <laughs> in Southwood, Virginia. My doctorate is from Virginia Tech, and that's in the Department of Human Nutrition, Foods, and Exercise. And I studied the role of the microbiome in metabolic disease, uh, like type 2 diabetes, and yeah. whether probiotics could potentially uh, provide some benefit uh, or protection and during high-fat feeding. And that was way back in the 20-teens, um, before gut health was uh, really a thing on the internet yet. I went on to teach exercise science at Georgia Gwinnett College for four years. And then I was hired by Renaissance Periodization as a nutrition coach my last year of teaching. Mm -hmm. And I had to make the difficult decision of whether I wanted to stay in academia and pursue, you know, sort of a tenure track career or resign and go to coaching full time. And I chose the latter. And so I was able to coach full time, speak internationally for a few years. I started my own business, the Vitamin PhD Nutrition. I collaborated with my good friend Shannon Beer on sort of a joint venture, comprehensive coaching. And after leaving RP after about four years, I started writing for Examine at Barbend. And I just recently became an editor and writer at Feast Good. And um, so doing some coaching, a lot of writing, mentoring around comprehensive coaching and intentional eating. And I've also done a fellowship in the scholarship of teaching and learning. And that's when I really became interested in helping people feel uh, curious and motivated to learn. And I brought that into teaching. I was an advisor as well. But the way that I did advising was almost the um, motivational interviewing version of student advising. So it was more uh, student-centered and a different yeah. way of having those types of conversations. Mm -hmm. um, that's about it. That's all I can think of right now. That's, um, that's just that, right? That's it. That's... It's such a lot. I feel like the longer, the older I get, it's going to be a longer, uh, longer story. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's good because, I mean, I see honestly see a lot of parallels in my background. So your research for your doctorate, that was that all in animals, I, I take it? Yeah, I yeah. helped assist with the human study that mm -hmm. was going on on my way out. Okay. So I did all the rodent, the animal husbandry side of it. Yeah, yeah. So were you giving them like actual probiotics or how were you running yeah. those studies? So unfortunately for these unfortunate mice, I was giving them an oral gavage. So I was essentially feeding them probiotics. Yeah. Okay. So okay. I became very good at that. I was yeah. tube feeder of the lab. <laughs> so the reason I ask is because I was a research assistant at Iowa State for about a year and a half. And mm -hmm. there was a probiotics researcher at Iowa State at the time. 
and you know, you know, labs kind of assist each other if needed. And one day they needed help making these resistant starch brownies. And I was like, what is this stuff? I mean, that, that's literally what they were. If you, it, it, there was this, we had this flour type product mm-hmm. and that was high resistant starch. Mm-hmm. And then they basically needed to, we needed to make it into a format that the mice could eat yeah. uh, at will. And if anyone's ever worked with like fibers or anything like that, like it forms a gel essentially mm-hmm. when very gelatinous material, when you add water to it, well, guess who got the job of mixing? I did. It's like, oh, get the guy with the biceps over there to to mix this stuff. And I'm just like mixing this super dense gel. And then we, you know, you make it into like a pan of brownies almost. So gross. <laughs> so gross. Oh man. Oh man. And uh, but yeah, of course you feed it, you and then luckily I was not there for when the study was concluded and then you need to harvest the tissues. Yeah. But I do remember one time where we had our own tissue harvesting day and my role was always the mouse slash rat handler. So I always got the job of giving them the ketamine shot that would knock them out because of course they don't like that. Yeah. They don't like, like, that, that was a crazy thing about research was mm-hmm. you get this, you think, you know, when you read the studies, but then when you actually do it, you're like, oh yeah, this is a rat. Rats don't like being handled or getting a syringe put in them any more than we do. So. Yes. Um, but at the time we would kind of do our thing, you know, take kidney, liver, that kind of stuff. And then for one of them, the vet school students came and they took out the colon because they were doing some, Mm -hmm. like, that was a very interesting thing to just see. And we were all just hoping and praying that nobody punctured a colon because we were all locked in this room together for, you know, who knows how long and we didn't want to deal with that. So yeah, that area of research is super interesting. And so the reason I guess I kind of went down that route was I struggled a lot as someone who had a background in coaching, strength and conditioning, working with athletes. In my master's, I was, you know, as part of the sports dietetic staff. And then I got put in a lab Mm -hmm. and I struggled a lot. I did not like it. I did not like the kind of isolation, the lack of human interaction. And there's always like a balancing act here. If you get way too much of one thing, it kind of wears on you. But how did you find that for yourself? Because again, you were, you know, you're coaching a lot now. Did you notice anything about yourself through that process? I think graduate school tests anyone's mental fortitude. (laughs) Like it's like when, you know, they say when you're married, if you have a baby, that will amplify any issues that you might have. And I think it's the same thing with grad school. You have an underlying mood disorder that will amplify it. You'll mm. find out that you have that. You'll be diagnosed. <laughs> but actually, um, when I was in my junior year of undergrad, that's really when I realized that I wanted to um, pursue a professorship. I wanted to teach in higher ed. I really fell in love with teaching because I was tutoring my classmates um, for our anatomy and physiology course, which was a six credit course. It was combining AMP one and two in one semester with the lab. I mean, it was like light speed learning and I just loved the content. I found it fascinating. It seemed to make sense to me. It was at the time I can look back because I hadn't been diagnosed with ADHD yet. And I was like, 
oh yeah, okay, that was a hyperfixation. That's what I wanted to learn about. I was absolutely obsessed for several months. And so I was like, oh, well, I want to be a professor. I actually don't want to work in a gym. I don't want to own a gym. I took, you know, one business and liability course. And I was like, oh, wow, this is beyond <laughs> work. I can't know if I'm mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I knew that I was going to go on to grad school. And I actually had to ask my faculty advisor to write a letter to the head of the internship program at my undergrad institution. Because when I told him that I wanted to work at a skeletal muscle phase and biochem lab instead of working at a gym, he was like, I don't know, that's not really what students do coming out of this program. I don't know how that's related, hmm. which I thought was odd because I'm like, well, actually science, skeletal muscle phys, biochem. Yeah. Fortunately, my faculty advisor was like, obviously related. So he wrote a letter and I did my internship at Virginia Tech in the yeah. lab where I eventually did my doctoral studies. Sure. So I was... I'm just a curious person by nature. And I knew, you know, that grad school was going to be a lot of reading Mm -hmm. and I love that. And so I didn't mind so much the I didn't. And actually, I don't feel like I was even that isolated because we were a fairly large lab and we collaborated with other too. There was quite a lot of interaction with other people and collaboration. There was a lot of sort of paving the way because my initial research was actually focused specifically on hypertrophy or skeletal muscle growth, you know, during mm-hmm. high fat feeding and models of muscle loss. And that study was unfortunately canned because after our first very successful six months, we did the the tissue collection and the samples were not stored correctly. And I hate to blame the undergrads, but I was like, we can't, you have to, you know, make sure that these are in a holder. The trizol will take all the Sharpie off. You can't just put it in a bag and throw it in the freezer. And they did exactly that. And so because there was no, there were no labels. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So my side project uh, on probiotics became my main project. And yeah, it wasn't what I was really passionate about, but Mm. I was curious about it. The real challenge there was that we didn't have experience, you know, collecting intestinal samples and trying Mm. to run, you know, protein assays and whatnot on tissues that are covered in proteases. So there were a lot of roadblocks to successful, you know, tissue sampling and analysis. But my advisor was really supportive of my wanting to explore and also knew that I didn't intend to go on to a postdoc or like an R1 research institution. I wanted to go on to teach. And so who's also supportive of me during the teaching fellowships that I did. And so I felt like the path that I took, even though there were a lot of detours and obstacles, it was more of a means to an end to, to get into higher ed. And the gut health side of things was sort of just serendipitous. Yeah became popular once I resigned and I was able to start speaking about that. Yeah. Very interesting because I did not finish my doctorate, Mm -hmm. obviously, but I kind of came to a similar fork in the road where my original project did not work out. It was supposed to be like, you know, vitamin D and muscle in humans. And my, it just didn't work out for various reasons. And then the lab I ended up working in looked at basically epigenetics and vitamin D. Okay. And I was like, okay, I see a path here. I mean, epigenetics is hot right now. When I leave, I'll be an expert in both epigenetics and vitamin D, which are two hot topics. And I can do with what I, you know, after that I can go. And ultimately it was just too big of a a hurdle for me to climb. 
or to get over. Like you said, you know, the passion thing is interesting because if even if you're passionate about it, it becomes a grind eventually. Oh, yeah. But then the lab stuff combined with that was a lot for me. But yeah. with it, you know, this, so today's topic is going to be coaching, right? And I feel it's just funny to me that this, all this kind of seems a little unrelated on the mm-hmm. surface, maybe, but I actually feel like it's extremely related to coaching because, you know, if you're like a, a professor who's got, students under you there's an element of coaching there your advisor allowed you to seek out things that you wanted to pursue so there's an element of coaching there you know your approach to advising students is essentially a coaching role when you talk about taking more of a motivational interviewing approach of being student it's being student led i'm not the expert saying this is where you need to do this class and this class and this is the route let's do some discovery here and I, when I was a, a teacher, a professor, that's kind of the approach I took. I'm like, I'm a coach in the classroom. And now as an editor, I am somewhat a coach to potential writers and authors. So I guess where, we'll, where I want to start with this is just explain a little bit more de- deeply your approach to coaching and how you work with clients. And you can frame it in into whatever type of situation you want, whether that's one-on-one, but just go into how you approach coaching, the things you've realized over the years and how you work with people. Oh, for sure. I So I came into coaching, I think, with a set of beliefs that a lot of new newer coaches might have and, and even experienced coaches, which is a belief system centered around the fact that I am the expert in all of the content that my client will need to succeed in this endeavor. And so okay. it predicated on the belief that the only obstacle here is the knowledge deficit that the client has. And then I also provide them some accountability. Some people approach that as, you know, like a tough love approach, you know, like this person needs a kick in the butt. They need to know that someone is going to call them out when they're not following through. A lot of clients believe that also. And that really created this hierarchy of me being the expert, telling this person what to do, knowing what's best for them. And while that can be effective for some dynamics, especially for maybe a short-term change or for a consulting role, it Mm. really doesn't facilitate the changes that we would hope to see in our clients going forward. Because I think in most cases, coaches actually want to help their clients feel more confident you know, better sense of self-efficacy that they can succeed in a specific situation. They do want to help them learn, but they want their clients to be able to actually apply this information and utilize it outside in the real world day to day. And over the course of, you know, my first couple of years of coaching, I realized that I was not able to actually help my clients as much as I needed to or as they needed me to. And it was I was kind of at a loss of, okay, I've given them this plan. I've given them all the information. They know what to do. They know how to do it. Why are they still not doing it? We're both confused. Like the client's Mm -hmm. like, I don't know why I can't do this. And I'm like, I don't know why you can't do that either. Right. Mm -hmm. Like it's you, like the whole, that saying you want a bad note. Everyone has to see in 24 hours. So, you know, there are all these very unhelpful tropes. And that's when I started to learn more about motivational interviewing. And I started to learn more about just the science of motivation and 
started to have discussions with my clients about, you know, uh, in an attempt to enhance their pre-existing motivation. Well, why is this important to you? What are you hoping to get out of it? What I really discovered over time is that in many cases, the pursuit of a specific physique is a means to an end that's not guaranteed by having a different physique. Like people really wanted to make significant changes in their lives. They wanted to feel more confident. They wanted to like their bodies and themselves more. They wanted to feel more respected, valued, connected. And they thought that the way to do that was to look, you know, in their words, like to look better, to look leaner. Mm -hmm. That's when they would feel better about themselves. And I think that where a lot of times the, the industry falls short is, yes, they can recognize that that might be the case, but they don't then point out the fact that, well, that's sort of a conditional liking of yourself. If the time that you like yourself or if the only time that you really are proud of yourself and you feel good about yourself and your decisions are when you look a specific way, that's really conditional. And it's not a lasting change that really comes from a shift in your internal world. And so my coaching has changed quite a lot in the past several years from a focus on external in terms of external regulation of I eat a certain amount of macros based on what time it is, based on you know what I'm told is healthy, external regulation around being driven by a drive for thinness and appearance and the approval of others more internal regulation of now I can better identify my actual physical and emotional sensations. I can better meet my own needs. I'm really good with myself. And so I can accept the changes that might occur in my external appearance. And I know how to better communicate, set boundaries and ensure yeah. that my needs are met. And I'm not coming from a place of fear and trying to fit in and uh, be liked by others. I'm coming from a place of authenticity. And the way that usually plays out over time is, you know, first helping people identify their values, identify the behaviors that are really serving them or not, identify what's really under their desire to look a certain way, and then to identify the changes in their lives. And it does often start with more basic lifestyle things like, well, you know, I actually feel better if I go on a walk or I actually feel better if I, you know, eat foods that digest comfortably. And then sometimes I feel better when I engage in a small act of rebellion and I eat a donut for breakfast instead of having some, you know, pre-planned macro-based meal. And that's an actual, a real, that's, a, that's a, an actual client story that I have one client who decided I'm going to have a donut for breakfast. And it was this domino effect of this one small act of rebellion and being authentic and doing something that was, you know, a moment of joy. And yeah, no, I'm not. We're not saying, yes, we're going to eat donuts for breakfast every single morning because actually that does yeah. not feel good. You know, but in that moment, <laughs> yeah. it's yeah. Uh, having I'm giving myself this unconditional permission to eat or to rest or to whatever it is. And contrary to popular belief, that is not associated with worse dietary patterns or with reductions in physical activity. That actually when we have this sort of more weight neutral approach that it that encompasses things like self-compassion, unconditional permission to eat and body acceptance that people's dietary patterns either stay the same or they actually incre increase their fruit and veggie mm -hmm. intake. And it's associated with long term weight stability and continued engagement or increased engagement in physical activity, whereas the alternative that sort of like shame based and criticism based usually doesn't 
result in as positive outcomes, especially when we're looking at things like psychological health. So um, model now is more about flourishing health rather than just physical health or appearance. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot, definitely a lot to unpack there. (laughs) (laughs) So when someone comes to you and they have kind of this aesthetic, maybe kind of more externally focused, like goal, Mm-hmm. They want to look a certain way, whatever it may be. And if someone is more in the health and fitness space originally to start with, it can be a little bit more wrapped up in their identity, their self-identity than maybe someone who is doing it for like behavior change reasons. How does someone who who does see like their physique, body composition, their overall fitness which may have started because they truly love it and enjoy it, which is a lot of us, I think, in the in this area. How does that balance with what we know about the mental health benefits and aspects of exercise, both physiologically and emotionally? Because we know there's physiological benefits of regular exercise to to health, but then you know it could it's people use it to relieve stress. It can be an escape. Like for me, I've been working from home for the almost the last, well, since COVID, you know, my only social interaction through the day is the gym. Yeah. So like there, there's, there, there's like, like that aspect, but I will fully admit that I struggle to separate my, how I look mm-hmm. from who I am. Yeah. And I know people who are like this. So just how do you help people like either separate or navigate those kind of Jekyll Hyde aspect of this? Oh, absolutely. Well, one thing that I do want to point out that you've described about your the identity as a health and fitness enthusiast and the things that really bring you joy and help you feel better, those were all behaviors. And so those don't have to be removed from someone's identity. It's really about the valuation of their appearance. So those things all stay. It's just helping a person to differentiate between their identity as focused around sort of behaviors. So I action-based identity versus appearance-based identity. And it is true that some people believe that their appearance dictate how, and it is, and this is a fact true in our society, our appearance dictates to some extent how we are perceived and judged by others. And it's totally valid to be to have some concern about that, to, you know, wonder or maybe even um, hope that people perceive us in a positive way. And at the same time, we tend to not think that's a great thing to do to other people. Like we, we don't usually want to make assumptions about a person based on their appearance. And we kind of don't want people to do that to us either. So there is this sort of ambivalence there. And mm. in many cases, clients come to me with already feeling ambivalent. That's just this being pulled in two different directions. You know, on one hand, they really want to work on their body image. They want to feel liberated from things like macro tracking if they feel like that that has become more of a seatbelt that's too tight rather than something that's actually serving them. Yeah. So they're already in this place of ambivalence of I don't want to put so much focus on my external appearance. I really want to feel more free in the way that I approach exercise and nutrition. And also I'm concerned about gaining weight because there is a huge stigma around weight gain in the industry. 
and where we see people who are, you know, super lean or having lost weight as a, as a success, weight yeah. gain, even if it could come after, you know, someone has been seriously ill or injured and now they're gaining weight as part of their healing process, that people stigmatize that. So a lot of it does come down to helping people identify which of those beliefs have just been internalized, you know, based mm -hmm. on what society thinks and the beliefs, or excuse me, and the values that have been internalized versus their own authentic beliefs and values. There's definitely a period of discomfort there as well when people yeah. might be experiencing changes in their body composition. And that's where the body acceptance work comes in. And so it's not necessarily asking them to change their beliefs about their appearance or to, to really like all the changes that are occurring. It's just in this moment right now, weighing the pros and cons of continuing intentional weight control or weight loss versus taking a break from that, at least taking a break from that to focus more on your body image and your mental and emotional health which of those right now is your priority? And yeah. in, in most cases, yeah, it's the latter. And so they're able to work on separating their attachment to their appearance. And again, it's not that we like the changes. It's just that we accept them. And it, we look at things like cellulite or whatever in the same way that we look at a freckle. Okay, it's a freckle. Or even maybe the cellulite, you know, I don't necessarily like the way that looks, but am I going to let that run my day today? Nope, mm -hmm. I'm just going to let that be what it is. Then I'm going to practice going out in public and doing my thing and being authentic and start gathering evidence that, oh, actually, people aren't really paying that much attention, if at all. And the people that are going to judge me for my appearance actually are not serving me. You know, they don't really know who I am as a person. And I can show up aligned with my values as an authentic, quality human being, even if I have cellulite. Like, yeah. just, you know, those two things can exist at the same time. I the, the phrase you said that just struck me was who they are as a person. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Again, if thinking, thinking about like health, fitness, working out, nutrition, you know, it's something, it's a feature of you. It's not you. Yeah. Yet it is who I like. Well, I'll say I because I'll just use it. My mm -hmm. yeah. It is who I am. It's I've devoted my life to this you know mm -hmm. i've devoted my education my my professional career it is literally it's an interest of mine i i truly enjoy it it's a hobby at the same time mm -hmm. but yeah i've come to this kind of like sometimes where i'm like what would i do if it was taken away and it will be taken away at some point like i'm gonna be 90 years old hopefully someday and i can't can't really do this so how do you help nudge people into discovering who they are as a person Yes. Oh, I love this question. And I think that it's something that we're doing all along the way, right? Like we're not static. We're going to change over time. Yeah. Uh, and in some cases, it's something that, you know, I, I'm quite often working alongside a therapist. And so there's oh. the, the side that I am working with is helping people go from a place of like, mm, yeah, I'm okay, but could be better to really flourishing. That's prospering in the psychological, emotional, physical, and philosophical and social areas of life. So we have, we feel connected in our communities. We find that we have a uh, purpose and, and meaning in our mm. lives. We are either managing or free of mood disorders. We are either managing or free of physical illness. And then the therapist might help them with an area where they're actually really languishing. Like they're going to be helping to work with the symptoms of their mood disorder. Although there's a big gray area there and there's obviously going to be crossover 
yeah. um, disorder into the other areas of our life. We can still flourish and also have depression or anxiety or ADHD or what have sure. you without managing that. But yeah. the real practical ways that I start this process with a person is first to actually do a values-based exercise. So from a large list of possible values, asking people to pick either their five or 10 top values. And values are things that we can base principles on. They're, they can sometimes be thought of as personality traits, but they're things that are important to us. Like I can name some of mine, integrity, that's a big one for me, curiosity, adventure, authenticity. So from those values, I come up with principles, like integrity. The principle that I have is that I won't sell out, right? Like I will not produce harmful content for the purposes of making money because I don't think that that just is not aligned with integrity for me. Uh, Some people don't have that. Some people are like, I'm going to sell this supplement and it's up to other people if they want to take it or not. And I'm not doing anything necessarily wrong because I'm just selling the supplement. I'm making money off it. Other people are responsible for themselves. Not to say that either one is like morally superior. It's just that's one of my values. And then I ask them to identify which values are already showing up in their lives. So for a lot of people, yeah, they do value health or longevity. And they say, well, I'm exercising regularly. I'm eating a really nutritious diet. Like that's kind of already there. That is showing up in my life, maybe beyond what is really serving me because it's pushing other values out of the way. Because maybe they also value freedom or adventure, (laughs) you know, and they're like, I can't Mm -hmm. really, you know, I don't feel like I have very much freedom or adventure. I'm not spontaneous at all. I would love to be spontaneous, but I'm afraid that if I do that, I'm going to, you know, fall off track. And so- helping them to to really prioritize and see, you know, what, like where they could be feeling better mentally, physically, emotionally, socially. And then from there, we do what's called the intentional action grid. And that is a four quadrant. So for people who want to kind of visualize four quadrants, uh, one of the quadrants, usually the lower right-hand side, we just list the people and the values that are most important to us. So my spouse, my kid, you know, be having integrity, you know, I'm really passionate about my work. Lower left hand. So just to the left of that, we list some of the most common difficult experiences that we might have, especially Mm. experiential internal experiences. I want to, you know, I'm arguing with my spouse. I feel like we are disconnected when I yell at my kids or when I, you know, I'm just feeling like super stressed and drained at the end of the day because I maybe worked a little bit too long. And then then those are the internal, that's our internal, what's important to us on our difficult internal experiences. The top half of the quadrant, that's our external world. So on the right hand of the quadrant, so above what's really important to us, we have all of the things that we find really satisfying in life, like the way, the times that we feel most aligned with our values. So at the end of the day, you know, instead of associating on my phone, I really feel satisfied when I go on a walk with my spouse or when I spend time with my dog. Or when we have a family dinner or when I take a nap when I'm really tired, that actually yeah. feels like it hits the spot. And then on the left hand side of that, so above the difficult emotions quadrant, we have the things that we do to get short term relief. Sometimes these are called avoidance behaviors, but I like to use short term relief because it's less judgmental. And it also emphasizes that it's short term. So something like doom scrolling, you know, like dissociating. Oh, I like we all sometimes yeah, go down that. the TikTok rabbit hole. Yeah, that's exactly, you know, or just sitting and watching TV or a lot of times people find that, you know, snacking when they're not hungry is still going to bring them some sort of relief, but it doesn't feel great long term. Like 
most people can probably relate to, oh, yeah, actually, you know, I'm not a big fan of sitting and, and zoning out on my phone. It just feels like something that I do sometimes when I don't have the bandwidth to do anything else because I'm so tired. And from there, we look at what, again, you know, based on our values, what do we want to do more of? What maybe do we want to do less of? And why are we doing so much of the things that we want to do less of? And why aren't we doing so many of the things that we want to do more of? And that starts to help people really understand who they are and who they want to be uh, and what's getting in the way of that. And, you know, it might be that they they have a hard time letting themselves rest because they feel like that's, you know, they maybe have identified that as lazy or something, you know, even though it's not. It's a necessary part of life. We need to rest. We need to play. We need to have learn how to have difficult conversations. And so if it's something like that is maybe outside the scope of lifestyle coaching, then it's, you know, maybe they need to have a discussion with their therapist or a discussion with their spouse or a family member to rectify what's going on in that relationship. Because we often look at health and fitness in in a silo, but Mm -hmm. it is connected to every other aspect of our lives. And it can be a part of who we are. Uh, But when it starts to take up so much mental space and energy that we can't figure out who the rest of us is or like what we will do outside of that or how we actually want to show up, that's an opportunity then to say, well, maybe we make this part of the pie chart a little bit smaller and then see, are there some hobbies that we've maybe been neglecting because, you know, we didn't want to away from like meal prep or macro tracking. And over time, it really happens organically that that people do discover more about who they are and what they like to do. And they try out new hobbies and they feel more confident. Yeah. You know, I don't necessarily have to show them. And I'm kind of just like pushing the initial domino with them. And then from there, it's really an organic process of self-discovery. Awesome. So for people maybe who come to you or they want to flip this, go, this is the opposite situation where they're adding in the health and fitness. I don't know. Maybe it's because, you know, I'm getting more things on my plate as a person. You know, I'm about literally within days, I will have my second child. So there's more, <laughs> my pie is becoming sliced for me, whether I, with, you know, no matter what, you know, these yeah. are obligations that I have and they're wonderful. Mm-hmm. But yes, the health fitness slice of my pie is smaller. Some people, their pie has been split amongst their certain things for decades, years in health and fitness has never been that, Mm -hmm. but it maybe has gotten to the point where it needs to be, whether that's health or, you know, functionality, Mm -hmm. uh, healthy aging, but that's not a part of their life and has not been for, for any, at any point, Mm -hmm. but, and now they're trying to add it in. Um, it's the opposite issue with that you just described of, well, I've got to decrease this and then add in something else. Yeah. And I've often thought about that situation and like how to help people because it's maybe not an interest of theirs. Mm-hmm. They don't really want to do it. It's almost like I have to do it. Mm-hmm. And it hurts. Like it physically, <laughs> you're asking somebody to do something that physically hurts mm-hmm. uh, like a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. But I've, as, as you've seen and I've seen is once people kind of get over that hump mm-hmm. and realize, oh, I can do this. This can be a part of my daily life. This can be a part of my life. Then that becomes a little easier. But 
getting over the hump can be really hard. And mm-hmm. almost again, thinking it's got to be prioritized. It's got to be in a very intentional thing that they add into their life. So what have you done from that perspective for helping people, I guess, from that other end of the spectrum? It's so funny that like just phrasing it as the other end of the spectrum. And I do it and it's really the same thing. It's two sides of the same coin. Yeah. Because yeah. when I'm starting to work with someone who kind of wants to stop tracking macros, but they don't want to, it's not necessarily physical, physically painful. It's emotionally painful and mentally painful. It causes so much anxiety. And it's that first step of, oh my gosh, I'm going to not track this one meal or this one macro. Like that first excruciating that before they can pick up momentum and they feel so so not ready even if they have the desire you know or even if they know that i know this is going to be good for me long term but right now oh my gosh i don't think i don't know if i really want to do this it is always about helping them first resolve that ambivalence by helping them to be their readiness, like whatever little nugget is there, whatever little seed is there to help them speak why it's important. And to also give a lot of affirmation and reflections to help them not an affirmation is not the same thing as praise. I'm proud of you. Affirmation is pointing out to them a trait that could be seen as an advantage and doing that in a way that is very positive. So even if someone says something like, oh, I've tried this so many times before and I never can stick to it. Well, you're really willing to keep trying. You know, that is that's uh, you're very determined. I can see that you're really committed to this. And then what has made it uh, difficult in the past for you? Okay, X, Y and Z. What do you feel has been helpful to you in the past? So helping to draw out the evidence that they do have experience, that they do have a level of expertise in themselves and helping them pick the thing that they think is most feasible. So even though we as coaches will get really excited and we're like, yes, this person's so ready. They signed up for a coach. No, all they were ready for was signing up for the coach. That's (laughs) You know, so in their mind, like they did the thing. They're not necessarily ready for any of the subsequent stages. And that's where having the the motivational Mm. interviewing skills and also skills in um, acceptance and commitment training and cognitive behavioral coaching can help them to uh, feel a little bit more ready. You know, they feel more confident. They feel more committed to taking steps toward change without having the stakes so, so high that if they fail, they're going to really feel poorly about themselves. You know, so we want to ensure that we're helping them follow through on a goal that is very feasibly achievable, that we help them come up with plan B and plan C, and that we help them to identify what is actually the the deficit here. Like, how am I going to supplement your learning journey? You know, do you need some more information? Well, I definitely have a lot of information, which I'm going to provide with your permission, because I'm not here to tell you what to do. But if you're like, I, you know, I kind of want to start meal prepping, but I don't know, it seems so overwhelming. Oh, what seems overwhelming about it? Oh, because I just don't really know how to cook and whatnot. And it seems like cooking so many things at once. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That can be super overwhelming. What do you think would make that easier for you? And then they may say, I don't know, maybe having some recipes. Oh, would you like me to give you some recipes for like really easy? I I wrote one of my biggest blog posts was recipes for other people who hate recipes. And it was very straightforward meal prep guide that resonated with other people that were like, 
I don't want to read some, you know, five page story about how your great grandma used to make this granola and, you know, well, ingredients you probably already have in your pantry. Start by milking your Bolivian goat. You know, I just want to be like, can you tell me what temperature to cook that and like how hot mm-hmm. they're supposed to be? So, you know, helping them to identify what it is that they actually need. It's sort of yeah. like being a travel guy. You know, I'm not telling I'm telling this person. You want to get to the bottom of the Grand Canyon, you can walk, you can take a donkey. Um, There are other less pleasant ways. Those are probably the two best ways. And then they're like, tell me more about that. And then they decide, I want to do the donkey route. Okay, well, now I'm going to have to give you all the supplies you need to ride a donkey to the bottom of the Grand Canyon. And I need you to check in with me along the way to to let me know if you're having issue. You know, are you chafing or something like that? How's the donkey Rather than telling them this is the way that you have to do it and then wondering why they're not following through. Well, they didn't want to ride a donkey to the bottom of the Grand Canyon. I just told them to do that. So it it becomes less stressful and confusing for both parties when you collaborate in that way. It definitely can become a lot less stressful for you as the coach because Mm -hmm. you're you're loosening the reins a little bit, you know, you're meeting them where they're at. That's the best, that's a very common, I guess, way to, I guess a lot of people frame it is like, mm-hmm. I know what I can and cannot maybe expect based on where this person is at in their journey or where mm-hmm. they're at on the things that they need. Yeah. What resistance have you had from clients as to that style? Because oh, okay. I, I, you know, to, from the confusion standpoint, from the client's perspective, mm-hmm. I've had situations where I've just kind of felt like the client or the person I was talking to, whether it be a student trying to figure out what classes to take, what route to take, an athlete, whatever, they're just kind of like, why are you asking me all these questions? You know, like, just, can you just tell me what to do? Like, you're asking me these questions and I don't know the answers to these questions. Just do you have pushback resistance or just people who kind of get just tired of that introspective process? Cause it can be very mentally draining. Yeah. Has that ever happened? And I guess, how did you work with that? Oh, for sure. And I love that you use the word resistance because that's also in the motivational interviewing literature that, that people used to be sort of labeled as resistant if they didn't do the thing that either the coach or therapist told them to do, or even that they said they wanted to do sometimes. And that is a form of resistance of resistance is sort of seeing obstacles in the external. So, you know, my family is sabotaging me or like, why won't you just tell me what to do? The reason I'm not succeeding is that you won't tell me what to do. Now, there is definitely validity to can you please tell me how to do X, Y, and Z. I actually, the only reason I'm not doing this exercise is I don't know how to do it. Can you please tell me how to do that? And in that case, if we were to say, no, you have to figure it out yourself, then we wouldn't. What do you think you should do? (laughs) So we do want to be very careful with the, the number of questions we're asking and when and why we're asking them. So we actually want to be reflecting more than we're questioning. So that's giving the reflections are like, you know, that must be really difficult. It sounds like you're feeling super confused or, you know, you sounds like you're feeling overwhelmed, whatever. And then asking questions in a very intentional way and then seeing when this person is asking for information, advice, feedback, we can really uh, most of the time just ask, would it be okay if I gave you my thoughts or it sounds like you really want some information about this? And even if a person were to say, 
why can't you just tell me what to do? Then we can say, hey, I totally understand that. It sounds like you're feeling super overwhelmed and you really want to have some specific guidelines. I really want to collaborate so that I am working with your expertise on yourself. So I'm happy to give you some more information. What has worked for you in the past, maybe, and we can build from that. And so you can still provide that information. It's sometimes they say it's like a dance and you're leading the dance, but you're both still dancing together. You can't pull them around on the dance floor. And yeah. so that kind of back and forth collaboration. Um, but to identify that, you know, if a person's saying something like that, they're probably feeling frustrated and overwhelmed and they maybe want to just like offload all of the mental work onto someone else. And mm -hmm. again, that can be helpful in some cases, but it just might also might not be aligned with your values as a coach. So, for example, I don't provide mm -hmm. meal plans in large part because it's outside my scope. But I've had people ask for meal plans and I validate yeah. where they're coming from and why they would want that and also explain why it's not something that I provide. And if they want to work with someone else, that's OK. It's no hard feelings. It's not a personal thing. Yeah. And it's really important for coaches to practice you know, what, well, I say for myself, it's me that it's important for me that I practice what I preach. So when I yeah. am teaching people about setting boundaries and showing up authentically, resting, I do all those things myself too. And it's not an easy thing to do. And I think that's even um, more of a reason to practice it so that you can empathize with your clients who are starting yeah. to, they know the things and set boundaries that, oh, it's so uncomfortable, but it's so important and fulfilling long-term. Yeah, 100%. So do you, do you set that expectation right away when you start working with somebody? Yeah, absolutely. I ensure that we have a discussion about the comprehensive coaching approach, the way that I practice with clients, what I will help them with. I think that also people are, I have the benefit of people kind of knowing what I'm doing already. And, sure. you know, and I have yeah. never marketed really, almost never have I marketed like transformation photos. So I think that's another thing, too, is that we don't want to bait and switch, you know, to have mm. transformation photos. And then I'm like, well, actually, I only coach you know, weight neutral approaches, which I don't. I, I do a very small amount of weight modification yeah. coaching for certain scenarios. But to ensure that, yeah, that's that our storefront represents what we're going to provide up front yeah. and that, yeah, we practice saying no without apologies and in a respectful collegial way so that. The client knows right up front, you know, we're in this together. It's a collaboration. And also we can both uh, communicate openly and say, hey, actually, I don't like this thing. Can we do something? Yeah. Different? Because I think that is also beneficial for long term change that that there is that open communication. Yeah, I mean, so much of it's playing the long game and my brain goes to motor learning versus motor performance mm -hmm. and the conundrum there of what are the things I can do with a client, an athlete, a group of athletes that will immediately improve their motor performance. There's some things I can do, I can say, that will make a movement look much prettier mm -hmm. in five minutes. Yeah. However, retention and being able to perform when you are not there is the goal, <laughs> especially if an athlete is like a field and court sport athlete where you are not there uh, in the game with them or a power lifter or a weightlifter, like you're there watching maybe, but they've got to perform on their own when it counts. Yeah. 
So from a learning perspective, we know that some things we do in, in the short term for motor performance actually is not beneficial long-term. Mm-hmm. I see that very much as the meal plan yes. or I'm going to give you this thing and almost, gosh, so many approaches that will lead to short-term progress and quote-unquote success, depending on what the goal is there, that are not good long-term. Yeah. Uh, and that's where the some of these techniques come in of we've got to think long-term success. There's going to be ebbs and flows. Mm-hmm. No process, I don't think, in any facet of human life is linear. Right. You know, the process that I just described with motor performance and learning, like that's not a linear process. Yeah. The changes of weight, whatever it is, not linear. How you mm-hmm. feel about certain things is not linear. All really just like complex things to work through with people. Yeah. So that's, those are all really good. I think just lots of great things that you, that you brought up. So for people and for, I guess, coaches who are listening to this, mm-hmm. you know, other than listening to other of your podcasts, things that you've done, where can they go to learn more about this, these types of things? Oh my gosh. Yeah. It's difficult to find one, like one area to learn about these different aspects of coaching and, and mm-hmm. just the human experience of the client. So there is uh, PsychWire provides a really great motivational interviewing course that's foundational. Um, the Health Education and Training Institute out of Maine uh, provides uh, three levels of more um, personalized motivational interviewing training. You can also find motivational interviewing training seminars. There is no certification um, and that's by design. The developers didn't want that to become like a certification because it has to be something practiced. Mm. So I would recommend that. Um, there are some books on um, cognitive behavioral coaching just in general. And in there's also a motivational interviewing in nutrition and fitness book. The eighth certified health coach, which now I think they've expanded that now, but that's another place to pursue certification if someone wants some continuing ed in that. And then Shannon and I still have our website, BTG Comprehensive Coaching. We have articles there. We have sort of paused mentorships, well, the group mentorships for now, but we both do individual mentoring as well. And and I also do individual mentoring, sort of a, a hybrid of excuse me, comprehensive coaching and evidence-based gut health coaching, if people are curious about that. But I would really say, you know, even following folks on social media, that there are people who are speaking about different ways of coaching. Jeff Stewart is one that comes to mind just right off of hand. So it's promising to see that there are definitely shifts occurring in the industry that people are starting to move away from the classic, you know, before and after transformation photos and also talks about things like deep health. Yeah. Um, and I, I've written a few articles for Barbend also on more internally regulated nutrition for athletes because they oh, are, cool. you know, yeah, they're reasonably concerned about, you know, sport nutrition and macros and whatnot. But there are plenty of athletes that if, even professional athletes that don't count macros at every meal and they can still perform well, mm-hmm. you know. So I, I feel really fortunate and I'm grateful for the team at Barbend because they've been so supportive in delivering that type of information in a way that I think is um, integritous to the research and also really practical to folks who need it. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. I will definitely link to Gabrielle's social media. I'll actually link to your articles because you can go to the author page on Barbend, the website, everything like that. So before we wrap up today, 
I want to just kind of highlight something uh, that I've noticed about you and that kind of coincides with what you mentioned about am I needing to be practiced and there's not a certification? Because here's the hardest thing I've felt or experienced with an MIS approach that's more, you know, in tandem and client centered, so to speak, is what do I actually say? <laughs> and to give that the nutrition and uh, the MI for health and fitness nutrition book some credit, they have so, there are so many case examples of conversations in there that do a pretty good job, I think, of what if someone says, this is what I say then. And then if they mm -hmm. say that, this is what I say. But I think in the moment, that's where I'll, I, I've struggled with that. I'm like, oh, they just said something I didn't expect. Yeah. How do I say something that falls in line with the approach I'm trying to take and not <laughs> reverting back to just saying, all right, well, just do this, then. you know, just do that. And that's where I feel like I got a little tripped up with, again, trying to help the client be a little more introspective or again, uncover the real motivations here or peel back the layers of the onion. And then they just get frustrated. And I'm like, ah, man, I'm, I'm not, this is not going the way I want it to. And so I actually used that motivational interviewing in health and fitness book as a text, a supplementary text when I used to teach personal training. And that's my students said, I'm like, man, this book is cool, but it's just so repetitive and I don't really know what to say. I mean, that is just something I've noticed about you is that because of the training you've had in it, you are able to come up with the questions to ask or if this, then that potentially. And there's almost like a little improv role to it. I wonder, if, I don't know if those courses have that aspect to it, but you do need to role play it if you want to truly get better at it. Um, so that's just something I'll, I will say about the, the overall approach. So I, I th there's, is there anything else you'd want to say or highlight about that aspect? Oh, yeah. And I've heard that from pretty much any mentee that I've had. They're like, okay, these examples make sense in writing. But then when I get into the moment, I'm yeah, like, it all makes oh, sense. But yes, what do I say? And I think a lot of that comes from the, you know, there it certainly practice, but also mm -hmm. Are you expecting yourself to say exactly the right thing? Are you expecting that there's one right thing to say and you haven't figured it out yet? Because no. that's definitely not the case. And it's about coming from a place of, and it's really interesting too, because in the motivational interviewing literature, they've actually found that it's less effective when it is presented by a person who's like presenting it from a textbook because it doesn't come across as sincerely curious. It's actually a little bit too technical and formulaic. And what actually would be beneficial, I think, to to anyone is to practice the skill of empathy more so mm. than really good open-ended questions or getting into the technicalities of all the different types of reflections that you can provide, but just to practice empathy. So that in and of itself will help you, A, shift more to reflections and affirmations rather than asking too many questions because too many questions can also create a weird like interview dynamic. And it's, yeah. Yeah. You know, well, how does that make you feel? You know, yeah. we, we want to ensure that we are helping. We can be prompting a person to continue to speak more with an invitation 
rather than asking them constantly for the information. Yeah. And and people mm-hmm. are often surprised to see that we actually don't have to ask a person a question. If we get if we provide them with empathy and empathetic um, statement, that will still prompt them to share. And there will yeah. eventually you'll come to a place that the, the natural pause, whereas I think that we both know everything there is to know about your internal experiences here and then coming up with a really good follow up question. And sometimes there are I'll give uh, mentees. I don't want to say the cheat sheet, but, you know, the, some of the best open ended questions would be like, what do you think needs to change for you to feel ready to take the next step? And, you know, what makes that difficult for you and or what has worked for you in the past? Mm-hmm. Or what's the next best thing or what's what do you think is your next best step? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that is, it's just an invitation. You know, there, you're, we're, we've already talked about all of this stuff, why they're conflicted, their level of readiness and whatnot, but we don't have to have the perfect statement. We don't have to ask the, the perfect question. It's really more about imagining, oh, how would I feel if I were in that situation? Hmm. Have I been in this mm-hmm. situation? And that sounds frustrating. And even if we don't get that part right, even if we're like, wow, that must have been, you know, you're must have been really bothered by that. They're like, no, it wasn't that big of a deal. Then mm-hmm. we still know more information. Like, oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. So it sounds like you kind of got over it pretty quickly. And they're like, yeah. yeah. And then you move on from there. So it's still about removing that need to be right and ask the right question and give the right information and know all the stuff and just showing up as another human being that, hey, I see that you have the potential for change here. And I know that you're capable of doing this. Um, and I'm going to help you also know that you're capable of doing that. But that doesn't mean that I have to be right about everything. Really more so means that you kind of have to be right about you. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Awesome. Well, Gabrielle, thank you so much for your time today. And yeah, you've just given a lot of great insight, great tools, uh, great things for people to think about. So I just really appreciate it. I appreciate you having me on. It was awesome. Thank you for listening to the Performance Connection podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, please leave a review, share on social media, and on Instagram, tag at Performance Connection Podcast, all one word. The content of this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. It is not intended to diagnose, treat, or cure any medical condition. Thanks again, and I hope you'll keep listening or check out other episodes.